0: This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by To Go Margaritas, To Go Margs from Rusty Taco, Franklin. Our friends at Rusty Taco are uh, circulating a petition asking governors and other policymakers to uh, permanently enable To Go cocktails, and in this case, To Go Margaritas. And they've been running a petition, and uh, I like it. There's nothing like a, uh, a refreshing, cool margarita at the end of the day. Genius, Keep Offer, Genius.
1: And I will note that uh, I'm glad you got this in the rotation. It's been, you know, what is it, two whole weeks since uh, Cinco de Mayo, maybe three. And uh, we couldn't resist to dive back into the margarita pool. So, yeah. No, I love the backstory of Rusty Taco. Love the family photos and the website. And you know what I'm going with? Listen, anytime the name of the restaurant is also a menu item, you got to go with that menu item. That is certainly... Their their lead, so I'm going with the Rusty Taco itself, pork, grilled pineapple relish, onion and cilantro. Sounds fantastic. I like
0: that little. I like that little. Ooh, that was nice. I'm going with the the brisket, man. Brisket taco. That's a that's a good that's a good program too. So I'm 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 kind of on the brisket wagon. But uh, they've also got a great menu of breakfast tacos too. I mean, these guys are these guys aren't playing around. So if you're near a Rusty Taco and Texas, Ohio, Arizona, Colorado, and some other states stop in for a a Margs to go, to go Margs forever campaign. And um, on that note, let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go
1: supersize. We need a political revolution. And we will make America great again.
0: From the home office of Aligned Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, the Independent Restaurant Coalition is emerging as a force to be reckoned with. We'll discuss how and why the group got started, how effective they've been, whether or not their agenda is a good or bad thing for the industry, and whether they are in it for the long haul. And there's growing bipartisan consensus on the changes that need to be made to the Paycheck Protection Program, especially with regard to loan forgiveness. We'll take a look at that. And the COVID epidemic has turned the traditional politics of alcohol upside down, presenting new opportunities for the industry, especially when it comes to off-premise sales and home delivery. We'll discuss how the industry needs to engage in this important space. We'll have those stories and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my aligned Public Strategy partner, Franklin Coley. And Franklin, let's jump right into it. Uh, For the last couple weeks, a... I don't want to say renegade group, but a group of purposely minded uh, restaurateurs has uh, kind of assembled, come together and gotten into, the, gotten into the act on the heels of this federal loan programs and perception that the, the way those programs were developed and drawn up, they were, they were biased toward big players and, and uh, the small guys kind of got left out of the mix. And some kind of celebrity chefs got t- together to bring voice to that opinion. What's going on with this independent restaurant coalition?
1: Yeah, and I have uh I have not really wanted to uh jump in this bandwagon and fawn all over this new coalition, but I guess we got to talk about it this this week for for reasons we'll discuss. But yeah, look, it's their kind of origin story if you will, are these 70 chefs, they got together, they thought they were being left out of the back rooms cigar deals between the big restaurant chains and the members of Congress. And so they're fighting for the independent restaurants, you know, that are often overlooked or left out of, out of the process. And so that's kind of their, their origin story, if you will, they have no doubt gotten traction. And, you know, a lot of these Tom Colicchio is kind of the, the leader of the group, if you will, but it's a lot of mini Tom Colicchio's and Tom Colicchio's, social media audience is probably bigger than the National Restaurant Association, all the SRAs combined. So, you know, he's got a big, and collectively, these chefs have have big microphones. They've drawn press attention, and they're continuing to kind of draw press attention. And so, you know, we got to at least kind of give them their due. And and I think we're probably a little overdue to have a conversation about them just for that reason alone.
0: So, Franklin, so they've got some, 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 some names, but do you think there's an actual need for an organization like this? Are they overall doing the industry more good or more harm? Where, where are they falling on that spectrum?
1: Yeah. And it's appropriate time to ask that question because you know, one thing I left out, they are starting to talk about formalizing. So this has been an informal coalition today, kind of working out of the James Beard Foundation. And now, you know, they hired a lobbyist and a public affairs firm via the James Beard Foundation. But now American Express and Resi, a reservation software system, have given them some seed funding. And it appears like they may incorporate and kind of stand this organization up. I think it's ludicrous. You know, I When we look around, we often lament that independents run all the state restaurant associations and the NRA and that the the chains, you know, for their size and scope are basically not as influential as they should be. And if you look at the board of particularly the SRAs, which collectively make up the NRA, they are often packed with independents and overwhelmingly with independents. And if you look at the issues that most of the SRAs are generally working on, I was looking at two issues yesterday and it just knowing we we're gonna have this conversation today, it kinda of stood out to me. Outdoor dining and delivery fees. These are important issues to the chains for certain, but they are much more important to independent restaurant tours. Independent restaurant tours are driving the conversations on these two issues and the SRAs have been really kind of leading the charge. You know, there were in the news yesterday there were a number of SRAs that were out pushing on opening up uh, outdoor dining space, sidewalk dining space, as well as pushing this delivery fee transparency and caps. Everybody in the restaurant industry cares about those, but those disproportionately, I think, impact independence. And the collectively, you know, the the association has spent a disproportionate amount of time on those issues. And we can do this over and over every day. I just think that they have not been left out. They're integral to – the association and, and always have been. And, you know, the independent restaurant coalition, to the extent they're getting traction, it's largely in part that they're acting as a foil against and kind of demeaning, you know, the the chains and, and playing that card. And I don't think at the end of the day that is helpful. When you're going up, our opponents, you are just handing them the best leverage they could ever have when they're splitting apart our coalition, the restaurant industry, piece by piece and alienating different parts. They're they're allowing and creating a situation where it's going to be easy to divide and conquer us. And so when we're up there lobbying at the federal level for a bailout or for a stimulus or for a relief, we should be acting as one voice, not as many, and kind of cutting each other out. The QSR community and the fine dining community and the casual dining community, the fast casual community, the independent community can't all be going at each other's throats, or we're not going to get done what we need to get done.
0: All valid points, all valid points. And to be consistent, I've been lamenting for, you know, 25 years that too few uh, restaurateurs are engaged in the process and get out of the inside the four walls of their restaurant and get out in this process. So kudos to anyone that wants to engage. So I I have no no issue with that. I I do think it's a little bit of a misnomer. I know there was a and it's not just this group, a lot of folks throughout various industries kind of think that those Paycheck Protection Program and Small Business Loan Programs were all kind of rigged for the big guys. And countless pieces of legislation coming through Congress, that is the process. The business community or the labor community, whatever the lobbyists can can work on these pieces of legislation for months and years and tweak and, 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 and try to get their agenda uh, represented in, those, in that legislation. This stuff happens so fast. It was done so fast behind closed doors. To, to think that industry lobbyists whether it's from the retail world or restaurant world or whatever were outsized influence in this process i think is a misnomer the process was it was an inside ballgame process between the white house and congressional staff and there was probably less avenue for direct business community lobbying is is kind of my assumption on this and so i i don't mind them coming together i don't i think it's great advocating their issues great but the perception that the big go- the big guys are up there behind in, in smoke filled rooms, you know, carving out protections for for themselves, I, I just don't think it rings very true on this particular piece of legislation.
1: It 100 percent does not, and we were one of the first to lament that and criticize the process for the way it was set up. It absolutely was not necessarily. It was giving a leg up to those that had existing relationships high up. You know, in, in banks or with, with banks that could process these loans and, and those that did not have those relationships were at a disadvantage. And, and that was, as you said, the result of a messy flushing, you know, trillions of dollars down the pipeline as quickly as possible. And, and there were some, some problems and Congress has worked to fix that. Certainly there was no industry lobbyists up there trying to rig things that way. You know, no one understood all of the unintended consequences of, of moving this quickly. And to your point, Nobody has any problem with anybody coming out here and saying, you know what, our company is for a $13 an hour starting wage. We're for paid family leave. And, in fact, we would advocate for that. Or, you know, this, that, or the other. There's no reason you can stand apart from what may be an industry line in a particular issue or in general. But don't kneecap the other folks while you're doing it. And that's a criticism we've had of some corporate brands that have used their own corporate positions and used the association as a foil To boost themselves. And so, yeah, if you're going to start a coalition to go advocate, that's great. But, you know, don't, don't chop down these other guys in the process that, by the way, you need to be working collectively with to get over the finish line. The last thing I would say in this, this is really what gets my goat. And maybe you can hear kind of the the emotion in my voice here is essentially what you're saying is that my independent chain of six fancy white tablecloth restaurants and my employees are much more in some metro area much more important than the franchisee that owns five BKs in Middle America or has few limited, you know, independents. Certainly not not what we're talking about here, not the ones that are leading this charge. And, you know, those are those are small business persons as well that have got their life invested in these companies as well. And devalue them, that just it almost it's just bad. It's it, It makes no sense to me. And, you know, there's a lot more commonalities and there are differences. And to alienate those persons is, it's just a shame to me.
0: Franklin, should the the traditional chain community as legacy, larger legacy brands that have you know, made the traditional investments in the public policy space and have been uh, significant voices in terms of the direction that industry, trade associations take, and so forth. Should that chain community be concerned about this
1: independent restaurant coalition? Here's my concern, and we've, we, you and I have debated this every day for the past, you know, three weeks. I don't know. They they may chase the next shiny ball that that. Runs by and forget all about this. But to the extent that it is concerning, here's why it's concerning. Coming out of the White House meeting this week, all the days are starting to blur together, but I think it was this week, leading up to the White House meeting, all the press was and the attention was the Independent Restaurant Coalition was meeting with the White House on restaurant issues, and that's what all the press was coming out of the meeting. They were not the only ones in that meeting. In fact, they probably weren't responsible for even setting up that meeting, but the National Restaurant Association was in there. There were many others in there. And by the way, the representative of the National Restaurant Association, one of them, was the chairman of the National Restaurant Association from Gallitos in New Orleans, which is an independent restaurant. Just you know, case in point. But the conversation coming out of there was, "What are the IRC's priorities with the White House and Congress?" And there was less discussion around the broader industry's participation and what and what their uh, their priorities are. So, I think that's a long-term danger. And we saw this week. While the restaurant industry has been pushing for this big package, right, release package, the RC has now introduced and tapped a very powerful, high-ranking Democrat on the Ways and Means Committee to sponsor their version of a relief package that, you know, doesn't apply to that franchisee, that BK franchisee or that Chick-fil-A franchisee or that you name it franchisee that owns a couple couple locations. It specifically says that chains – with more than 20 restaurants, are not allowed to participate in this bailout relief package. So it's basically just like the one the industry collectively has been pushing Congress in the White House on, except it it prohibits any, uh, you know, chain participation. I don't think that's helpful at the end of the day. That gives Democrats in particular an out on this issue that, that's just not helpful to the industry, and that's saying that your employees are better than my employees at it. Anyway, I could go on and on, but that is, I think, the kind of the long-term dynamic that's going to have to be managed. And I think we're stronger if we're all working together collectively and not sniping at one another.
0: Yeah, I guess I got two thoughts, uh, then I'll, I'll wrap it up with a, with a final question to you. But, you know, it's hard with the, with the restaurant industry. It's, you know, I've, I've said it a million times, you know, we're Indonesia, we're, we're millions of little, little islands that, that are, you know, So it's hard to get a sense of the industry and, and what is representative of the industry. Is the industry represented by a mom and pop full service restaurant in mid-America? Is the industry represented by a hot dog stand? Is the industry represented by a quick service restaurant? Is it a fine dining white tablecloth? It's a very diverse industry when it comes to these public policy measures and and how it affects quote unquote the industry. I think one of the challenges with with this particular group is because it's kind of so biased white tablecloth. It is not representative of the issues. You, you if you're you know we we said this about some of the kind of gourmet burger chains in New York, you know, if you're if you're selling burgers for 15 bucks a piece, there's a lot of a lot of fat built into your your P&L for for wage increases and benefits and so forth. But that's not where the the country lives, and that's not where the industry lives. And so, I I hope we're careful that we don't undermine what credibility the model has has gained in the last three months during this epidemic, with people viewing us as essential workers and essential to communities and so forth, and I, we've we've gained a lot of of political credibility in the last few months that I don't want to see kind of infighting in the industry undermine. Second piece is Franklin, you know. Again, my my bias, I'll give you my bias first that I'll give you a question. you know I was gonna I'm gonna ask you, are they do you think they're here to stay? Do you think in five years, there's a staffed independent restaurant coalition? My guess would be no. I mean, I think when things get back to normal and people get back to running their companies, the, the attention will go back to where it's traditionally been so i I don't want to dismiss anything, but in terms of uh, a long term disruptor, I guess if I'm gonna have to go to Vegas right now, I would bet no.
1: yeah. I would probably bet no to, and the reason being is the only issue that kind of, and this is why I get so animated about this, is the only reason, the only issue that really brings all these people together is we're small and you're not. And that just does not seem like something that has, over the long term, you can build a a coalition on. You know, you've got to have more than that. And I do not think that they are going to get consensus on a lot of other issues. And therefore, unless, unless the labor community, and this is also kind of one of the threats and lot tend to get animated, unless there's some, you know, deal with the devil with the labor community, which they would love, by the way, you know, the way that they've picked off franchisees that are disgruntled from a few systems and a few states to create problems. If they can, if they make some Deal with the labor community and it's not like Tom Calicchio and company hasn't flirted with them off and on over the years where they're both going after that could do real damage to the to the industry number one, and number two, I think that could create some longevity and some of the even greater greater problems and I think that would be terrible for for the industry writ large as well so I'm going to say no, Joe at this point, and I have tempered myself this entire time watching this this you know, organization pop up to not worry about it too much. But I I worry about it more and more only because I think it's damaging. I think it's damaging to the current debate in Congress. And I think it's damaging to issue management going
0: forward. Well, I'll give two reasons and we can wrap it up. We've spent enough time on this segment. But, you know, I think about, you know, to me, it's a, it's a larger microcosm of what happened in New York State slash New York City 10 or 15 years ago. There was a, a group of higher end tours that felt like the standard state restaurant association in Albany was catering to a different crowd and a different industry than the kind of the high end white tablecloths of New York City, and split off and and created this New York Hospitality Alliance or whatever it's called. It's been called a couple of different things. Bottom line, it's this fairly independent but somehow you know cooperative restaurant organization. And last I checked. We're getting pounded every which way in New York City Council. I mean, it hasn't. It doesn't really matter, right? How could the New York City Council be any more hostile to the restaurant industry than it is currently? So, you know, even if it has longevity, is anybody going to notice? I, you know, I think over time, no. And, and the other the other reason I think no is that you know there's a there's a inherent connection between the terms big. With wealthy, you connect big corporations to wealth, and you connect the little guy to not wealth. Well, these little guys are very wealthy. These are not poor guys struggling on Main Street. And so, at a certain point, I think that the the credibility of that will will kind of erode under them. And these are and these guys will be exposed as as wealthy guys too. And so, I, I think that also. Um, kind of undermines their long-term effectiveness they may be effective in their conversation here and you know Blumenauer's bill which I would be surprised if it went anywhere but I think in five years it'll it may just be another group with another label on the shelf would be my guess. So this week we saw some movement in the ongoing conversation around the Paycheck Protection Program and loan forgiveness. And it seems that congressional leadership in the past couple of weeks has been kind of very far apart A political divide developing, as we talked about in the last couple of pods. But Franklin, it looks like this week there's some level of bipartisan, at least intellectual agreement on some changes that need to be made to the Paycheck Protection Program. Can you opine and get, get us up to speed on what, what's happening there?
1: You know, Wall Street Journal reported that this was kind of happening last week and I was a little skeptical, but who knew the Wall Street Journal reporter and uh, DC was walking the Capitol was a little more dialed in. But, you know, and part of it was I thought, well, gosh, this is gonna get rolled into this larger relief negotiation, which seems to be bogged down, which now all of a sudden seems to be uh, loosening up anyway. but it is broken free. So there's a separate legislative vehicle that is uh, looking to extend the program from the eight-week covered period to 16 weeks, uh, that's a Senate version, and then 24 weeks, that's a House version. And this has bipartisan support. You know, Marco Rubio was quoted in the press past day or two basically saying, you know, this has 99 votes in the Senate or something, you know, basically would pass, you know, no problem. So this looks to be, Kind of cruising through, and it obviously makes some other tweaks and changes. But the big thing is, and this is what operators have been asking for all along, and it is lengthening out that that time period where you can spend the loan and still the money and still get it forgiven. The big question that that I had: this is you start getting into these kind of moral hazard arguments here, and you're already starting to see those emerge a little bit, is you know what about the person that had all their ducks in a row, the the quote-unquote good operator, right, knew how to do this and um, got the money early, has been abiding by the program and paying out. And so now we're approaching essentially June 1. So theoretically, they could be a month into the program paying monies out. And before this legislation passes, next week at the earliest, you know, the first week of June, maybe the second week of June, you know, they're at the last week or two or weeks of the program, and so – you know, without some additional tweaks, they may be penalized. You know, they may not have the flexibility that others have that were late in the process or were dragging their feet or couldn't get – so you'll hear some operators say, well, I had my act together, and, you know, now now those that didn't are going to, you know, benefit from this. So I don't know how they're going to balance that. There's also, obviously – a so there's kind of a fairness, and then there's just a compliance challenge, too, if in the final two weeks of the program you you change up the rules again – And how to how to people make sure they're they're good. So all that stuff I think will be hashed out here in the next week or so. It looks like this is going to move, and I think by and large this will be applauded as long as they can figure out a way to not kind of penalize those that that were playing by the rules all along and and got the monies and were spending it the right way. The other piece, and I'll I'll close out here because I know we're we're going too long in this. Is there's still furious lobbying over adjusting that 75-25 ratio in terms of, um, you know, what you can spend on overhead, utilities, rent, mortgage, obligations, et cetera, that 25% piece versus 75 on payroll or salary. They, you know, most operators want that closer to, like, 50-50. No movement on that. And as we've talked about, the whole purpose of this was really payroll. And so, you know, we'll have to see where that kind of lands, too, if there's flexibility in that piece. Well, well,
0: you know, everybody, this is not obviously a restaurant issue. It's a it's a business issue large and small and everybody's going to be watching this process, but it is good to see that there seems to be, you know, a consensus conversation on, hey man, we need to we need to tweak this. We need to to make sure that those most in need are getting getting funds and that 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 forgiveness process has has real clarity and accessibility and for uh for, for business owners. So we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about it in the next couple of weeks of the loan forgiveness piece. What's the latest and greatest there?
1: Yeah and the application came out and of course everyone's reading through it with highlighters and and pens. So the latest and the greatest is uh, we we've got clarity through the forgiveness application here and, and how to get that loan forgiven. The way that SB has set this up, <clears throat> there's an expectation that takes about three hours to complete this, and that everyone should be able to do it on their own. You know, I, I think you really need people involved in this, whether they're internal or external, that are experts in the space. You need, you know, you need to work with your CPAs and and your accountants and tax lawyers to make sure you're you're checking all the boxes. Uh, but essentially, what what we're looking at here is the eight week period has been defined as essentially this, the clock starts when you receive the loans uh, for non-payroll cost. So the, the day that you get that money, the eight-week clock starts on your non-payroll cost. For your payroll cost, the clock can start that day, or you can use what is what is called the alternative payroll calculation and start the clock on the first pay period. So if you received it on the 20th, let's say, and your first paycheck goes out to 26th, you can start the payroll clock then. But the non payroll clock has to start in the day that you receive. There's also, and the application doesn't totally clarify this, it's also a little bit unclear on whether it's incurred cost or paid cost during that eight week period. And, you know, the other benefit of using the alternative payroll calculation is basically for payroll, you align the incurred and the paid cost during that period, whereas they would not be in alignment if you started six days before your regular paycheck period. So those were important pieces that have come out of the uh, the application. There's still a little bit of confusion around the uh – Full time equivalency calculation. Essentially in the application, you have two different formulas to use. And from what I'm hearing from operators, you need to run the numbers through both those formulas because it's going to, it, it could just differ per operation, which is the better formula. And there doesn't seem to be consensus for one or the other. The last big piece, Joe, to close things out is that there was clarification given on owners and what they can be paid. So they cannot be paid. They have to be paid the lesser of uh, two amounts, $15,385, or eight weeks worth of 2019 pay, and owners cannot give themselves raises or hazard pay for the period. By the way, if you're doing that, you are not smart. <laughs> the way that the politics of this are going, you, know, you should not have had to wait to see in this this loan forgiveness application that you as an owner, should not be giving yourself a raise with this money. That would certainly draw scrutiny at some later date if you ever uh, went through an audit or found yourself in front of a congressional committee or the press got a hold of it. So um, that is codified in this application as a no-no, and I think anyone that's been following this process would have known that the no-no. So, Joe, those are uh, those are some of the big pieces in terms of the forgiveness application that that have kind of sussed out here as we've gone through it and talked to different operators. And I'm sure there'll be more. And of course, this all can change here in a week or two if Congress tweaks the program. So uh, we'll have to stay tuned.
0: We'll keep tabs on it. And uh, I'm sure there'll be much more to report in the coming weeks. We've talked numerous times on the pod in the last few months about the strange, uh, unique opportunities, actually, that the post-COVID political environment has afforded the industry. And one that is right at the top of the list, Franklin, is this entire kind of new world order with regard to, to alcohol and more specifically off-premise alcohol sales, whether in to-go form or in uh, delivery form. We talked at the top of the show about Rusty Taco and their to-go marks campaign, to-go marks forever uh, effort. It's been interesting, Franklin, across the country in these emergency declarations that governors have made, how much in a single stroke of a pen, decades and decades of alcohol law have been set to the side to help these operators kind of stay stay in business, and they've made what I think is a, an important fundamental connection between the, the longevity of this practice and the viability of those businesses. So there's a lot going on in the alcohol space. Franklin, what's, what are some of the unique political opportunities that jump out at you?
1: Yeah, the political dynamics, as you pointed out, are, well, the old Baptist and bootleggers coalition has always argued two things. And they've always stymied any loosening of the retail tier using two chief arguments: a public health argument that you know minor access to alcohol or alcohol abuse that has been their their primary argument. The secondary argument has been that look, any changes to the existing system is going to hurt existing retailers, and obviously they they push forward you know the small businesses, typically the mom and pop shops, and say hey, you're gonna you're gonna put Mom and pop here out of business if you if you change the rules. And so this pandemic, as you pointed out, has created these conditions where their public health argument is essentially null and void, right? Because it's a greater public health risk to have individuals, you know, going into package stores or going into retail stores, having it delivered, right, is a, is a greater and, and making it as widely available as possible in many different ways as possible, rather than funneling everyone into one store that's licensed totally makes sense from a public health perspective right now today. There are larger public health concerns than the normal. And as you pointed out too, the small business mom and pop keeping people in business argument is cutting against them now where alcohol sales are, by the way, are through the roof and uh, which is not uncommon during, you know, times like this and small businesses, restaurants in particular they need this this revenue for for them to stay in business, and so kind of that small business argument that the retail tier has always used to justify keeping these arcane rules in place that that also has kind of disappeared. And so, when you ask me, Franklin, where's a political opportunity, I say, Joe, it's everywhere because the arguments and the whole basis to keep these regimes in place they just are neutralized and don't exist right now. And you've seen as a result that you've seen this loosening up everywhere. You know, 32 states have taken measures to loosen things up on the retail tier, allow delivery, allow to go, not only for beer and wine, but also for mixed drinks, for cocktails. And the question, my friends, is, is it here to stay or things start to go back to Quote unquote normal, do the special interest gear up and do they slam the door on this liberalization?
0: Here's why I think it stays. Here's why I think it stays. I mean, if, listen, you know, again, using my Las Vegas, if I'm going to Vegas, I'm going to bet that the economic return to quote unquote pre COVID normalcy is going to be a very long slog. We're getting some chunks of it back fairly quickly here as, as states reopen and dining rooms start to get a little more full but getting back to where we were i think is going to that last 10 or 20% is going to be the hardest and i think operators will still have the you know legitimate high ground in saying hey how valuable this is to the business everybody got a phd in how fragile the restaurant and hospitality business model is over the last few week uh, last few months and so i still think the credible argument will be salient for a long time that this these, relaxing of these laws is, is critical to the viability of the business a B I think what you what what's been interesting is in this conversation you know the alcohol conversation traditionally has been a very difficult one in the sense that the various factions within the uh, alcohol industry and I'm talking about beer wine spirits I'm talking about the first tier the second tier the third tier there's been a kind of do no harm pact in there to not upset kind of the golden goose of the three-tiered system. I think you're seeing many facets of that system saying, hey, it's a new world order. You're seeing a lot of the people in the third tier, which is restaurants and retail and that that consumer-facing tier ready to do some some aggressive political and regulatory uh, activities. You're seeing some of the manufacturers saying, hey man, it's a new world order. Let's go. So there's there's a there's some new alliances in that in that coalition, if you will. And I think that genie is going to be very, very difficult to put back in the bottle. And the third piece is, which I think will carry the day, is the public awareness. Once people can get stuff delivered, there's no going back. I mean, Amazon's not going away now, right? Just look at any, any shopping mall, right? So I, I just think the, 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 the political opportunity, the styration in the, in, the, in the stratification in the industry kind of coming together, the to, various industries coming together toward this outcome, and then the overall public acceptance, political acceptance on both the left and right side of the aisle. We've got populist states doing this stuff. We've got rural states. We've got blue states, red states. I just think there's an overall consensus, this is the direction we're going to be heading in, and I don't, I don't think it's coming back. And so I, I hope the industry seizes that opportunity and is and is aggressive. The question is, Franklin, for you, do you think we have the political might to,
1: to guide this process? Yeah, that is a question. I, I do think that uh, you hit all the points I was going to hit, by the way. All the participants in the three-tier system have always wanted status quo because status quo is the money's flowing. Why Why mess with anything? But now, in 32 states, the status quo is different, and they're seeing cash rolling in. And so I do think those alliances, as you alluded, may be loosening up around this new status quo because the money is flowing. And so on the politics front, I think that helps tremendously. On the politics front, the awareness, I think. You know, retailers have always said, look, we did this poll. 82% of people want to be able to, you know, buy liquor here and get to go there. But it's all theoretical until consumers have it and then you take it away. And so building a consumer coalition in these various states has always been difficult because it's always been theoretical, whereas now, you know, free the margarita can actually gain petitions because people have had it. And so to answer your question more directly can the industry get organized and capitalize on that and yes they can if they get serious right now because the you know whether it's you know it's different every state right but let's just go call it the package stores or the traditional retailers you know maybe grocery stores in some states it, you know it's going to be different but those traditional retail tiers and even the second tier The ones that are impacted or think they're impacted negatively by this, and it's probably think more than actually impacted, but that's a debate for another day. They're going to come guns blazing at some point. When the public health concerns of COVID-19 start to fade into the background, they are going to come and they're going to make their arguments that they make every time, which is around access to children, access to vulnerable populations. We need to tamp it down. We need to control it.
0: And if we don't have
1: our compliance story together, if we don't have this coalition built, if we're not ready for war, quote, unquote, then then we're going to lose because they are going to bring it to our doorstep very quickly. And they have political allies and they have they've been writing max out checks to elected officials across the country in every state capital for the past 30 years. And so if we're not ready they will beat us. There's just no doubt about it. So that's the charge for the industry is can you get your ducks in a row quickly enough while all this other crazy stuff is going out to keep some of this stuff permanent?
0: And going back to our first segment, this is a real conversation where the Independent Restaurant Coalition could be very, very helpful in garnering that consumer-facing grassroots following that'll be critical to getting some of this stuff passed. So, you know, if Independent Restaurant Coalition wants to be helpful, there's an there's a issue tailor-made for you.
1: I would just say, and I would be totally supportive of the Independent Restaurant Coalition if that was their mandate, is to go do something like that versus taking pot shots to the rest of the industry. But you're right, 100%. Call to action.
0: So, uh, this is an issue you and I are working on uh, personally, uh, spending a lot of time and a lot of energy, and it's one we've been passionate about for a long time. So, we will stay close to this and keep you updated as well. It's time for the legislative scorecard where we go around the country and update you on the key legislative and regulatory developments. And Franklin, let's start back up in Washington, D.C. Some movement this week on the business liability conversation that's been percolating for a while.
1: Yeah, a lot of little factoids to report. You know, this thing just keeps bubbling. So the Hill reported that Pelosi was willing to negotiate, and the unions absolutely freaked out. So I think we mentioned that in the earlier segment, but it looks like we've got some loosening up that Dems are willing to negotiate on this liability shield if they get what they want out of Repubs. And perhaps encouraging Nancy Pelosi to come forward to the table, OSHA announced this week that it will update its policies related to enforcement during the pandemic, and it's going to begin ramping up inspections at all types of workplaces. So basically, what OSHA had said is, you know, because of the pandemic, we're not sending our inspectors out. We're only going to go to like high risk industries and locations and, and nowhere else. That is over. They're going to start going out everywhere now and they're going to prioritize those, those high risk industries and workplaces partially based on the number of complaints that are coming in. So if a restaurant location or a meat packing facility or whatever is getting, a you know, OSHA is getting a lot of complaints about that workplace. It's going to push it up the list. So you better believe that labor advocate groups know and understand that process. And for their kind of corporate campaign targets, they will be flooding those OSHA. We've already seen Fight for 15 do this with McDonald's, but you're going to see more and more of that. So that's that's something that all operators should be aware of. Also, I would say that in addition to the the union freaking out over the reporting on Pelosi kind of coming to the table, the EFLCIO cio is also suing OSHA to compel them to create an emergency standard protect workers. Um, finally, and and we mentioned this before, but, you know, we got a bunch of Chicago area workers or McDonald's, you know, these are Fight for Fifteen organized that have in addition to OSHA complaints, now they filed this last week a class action lawsuit based on the chain's inadequate quote unquote COVID nineteen protection measures. So the bottom line is just a lot, Joe. And I feel like every week it's gonna be like this. It's just a laundry list of these little developments. And it'll it'll probably continue to be like this for the foreseeable future. The only thing that can probably slow this down a little bit is if we get a a big, robust federal liability shield with, with strong express safe harbors. But still, this is something operators are going to have to wrestle with.
0: Franklin, moving on to wages, uh, we saw over the last few weeks and months, a concerted effort to advance a conversation around maybe slowing down these minimum wage increases and pushing back effective dates. We saw the state of Virginia do that. It seems like the pendulum has kind of swung back and, uh, and, and now it now seems a lot of states and localities are kind of em- embracing and, and defending those, those uh, wage increases in some, in some places even going further. So let's start in California. Uh, the governor made uh, an announcement through his budget proposal this week on their minimum wage.
1: Well, in California, it looks like it's going to be business as usual. $13 an hour on January one. 1- for small businesses, that would be fewer than 26 employees, $14 an hour. For large businesses, that would be 26 or more. So uh, we continue stepping up to that $15 an hour wage in California. Obviously, they could probably pull this back at some point, but I'd be surprised if they do that.
0: Some ballot activity in uh, the city of Portland, Maine, Franklin.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We- You know, we've got activists there looking to collect signatures to put a $15 an hour measure in the ballot by 2024. The threshold is ridiculously low there. So, you know, barring a stay-at-home order and even probably maybe with a stay-at-home order, probably they could collect these online or, you know, so it it shouldn't be a high bar for them to actually put this on the ballot. Uh, so that's something I'm sure we'll be reporting on here in the uh, the coming weeks and months.
0: And speaking of fifteen dollars, a bill in Michigan regarding essential workers.
1: Yeah, we've got a, uh, and this is you know going nowhere in the Michigan legislature. But we have a bill that would raise a minimum wage for essential workers at fifteen dollars an hour. I expect this will be the first of many that we see pop up around the country.
0: And uh, some localities getting into the act, similar bill in Baltimore, Maryland.
1: Yep. It's essential workers bill, essentially a hazard pay bill. It's closer maybe to the New York City bill in that you have this three-tiered hazard pay breakdown, $10 an hour for less than four hours, $20 an hour for four to eight hours of work, and $25 an hour for greater than eight hours of work. You know, complicating things there is we have a mayoral election in uh, in June, and the council president is running as the mayor, and the council president is the sponsor of this bill. So, that just does not bode well. This is going to get bogged down in electoral politics. And we saw this with a $15 an hour minimum wage bill in Baltimore that got bogged down in a mayoral race. And so, you know, we, this thing could end up getting punched over the finish line just as a campaign talking point.
0: Franklin, uh, one of those Bay Area cities in California kind of followed the state and they had a, a chance to uh, reaffirm their commitment to their expedited wage increase, and they did it as well. Some real news this week in in the corporate world, Kroger and Target made some announcements with regard to hazard pay.
1: Yeah, the municipality you're referencing was Santa Rosa. Uh, they are, they're sticking with the state. They're going to keep escalating. They're not going to take the off-ramp. And then, yeah, Kroger's doing a thank-you-pay program. To acknowledge employees, one-time four hundred dollar bonus uh, for full time, two hundred for part time. Good stuff um, that will kind of set the market. And then you have Target making uh, a commitment that they're going to extend hazard pay until July fourth. You know, the market continues to kind of change in in the uh, the restaurant retail area around the hazard pay and bonuses, et cetera.
0: It's just making it increasingly difficult for restaurant, traditional restaurants to compete in the labor market with these escalating wages on the retail side, this bonus pay, hazard pay. Man, it's it's going to be increasingly tough to find help out there. But Franklin, you mentioned earlier some activism with regard to McDonald's. They had a little, that little shareholder powwow this week, correct?
1: They did, which, you know... It's not surprising we're talking about a class action suit being filed this week. And we've, we've been talking about escalating walkout Wednesdays for the past couple of weeks. And, you know, they had a large walkout Wednesday this week and that is all in advance of the shareholder meeting. And so they did their typical thing, rallied their troops. I'm not sure that how much an impact it had beyond that, but you know, they keep chopping away at, uh, at McDonald's and, and keeping their, their staff on point.
0: Franklin, we alluded to it earlier, but in the delivery space, uh, a lot of activity this week across the country. Uh, We can start in Connecticut with regard to cocktails to go.
1: Yeah, cocktails to go. So the governor has further clarified an existing executive order. It's going to be open for business here. Ready to go mixed drinks and cocktails for delivery. The expansion was issued as a result of local chefs and the distilled spirits industry uh, highlighting the inconsistencies of the original order. So this kind of gets to both the points, Joe, you were making earlier about this is really an opportunity for the celebrity chefs. And we see this loosening within the, the three-tier traditional actors coalition. So that's, that's a positive development for restaurants
0: to win. Yeah, and similarly, uh, not exactly next door, but down the road in, Connecticut, uh, in Pennsylvania, the same thing. The Cocktails to Go was uh, approved, uh, a combined win for the, not only the distilled spirits industry, but I know the Pennsylvania Restaurant Association, our old friend Melissa Bova, uh, worked very hard on that one as well. Uh, so kudos. New Jersey, a little different The Governor signed... Some some legislation kind of extending his executive order in this space.
1: Yeah, a bigger win in a lot of ways. You know, signing legislation that would extend by six months the current executive order, and uh, it, it is similar to both Connecticut and, and Pennsylvania, um, permits any business with a retail consumption license or distillery and i assume that those are own premise sales licenses to sell mixed drinks in pint containers and other alcoholic beverages in containers of any size for takeout or delivery so a big win for the restaurant industry there as well Franklin, the one that,
0: that just strikes me and I, I you know the politics kind of urged you you mentioned the the Baptists and Bootleggers coalition i believe uh, that oklahoma on the governor's desk and for his likely signature is going to make permanent curbside pickup and home delivery of alcohol. I'm fascinated that the politics of such a kind of Bible belt state
1: uh, would so easily allow for it. And Oklahoma has been a, uh, a battleground in the past on the alcohol issue. I think they, I could be wrong in this. I'm sure people will correct me, but I think they may still have near beer in their, you know, like that's how far back they are in the modernization process where C stores and grocery stores aren't even allowed to sell full strength beer yeah, for me as well, Joe, it jumps off the page that, you know, legislation is awaiting governor's signature there that would essentially permanently allow for curbside pickup and home delivery of alcohol. The bill would also allow small breweries and wineries to sell products curbside, and though it would not legalize delivery for the breweries or uh, the dis- the, the wineries. But that's that's a huge loosening of of the rules in a state like Oklahoma. And and really outlines the opportunity across the country.
0: Yeah. I mean, these are states, Oklahoma, the comments Governor Abbott's made in Texas, we alluded to earlier. These are states that 10 or 15 years ago, we were fighting blue laws and Sunday sales limitations. And now they're the cavalry leading the charge on home delivery, man. It's just, it's, it's come Completely full circle, uh, Franklin. Uh, speaking of expansions, California is also moving, kind of opening up the the the, the restrictions a little bit as well.
1: Expanded alcohol service in California on sidewalks and parking lots, and and California's been doing a lot. But basically, this this loosens up and liberalizes. You know, you don't have to go through these exhaustive permits to get like a, you know a festival permit or whatever. It just allows for this spillover. So that's a, that's a positive development as well. Probably less so for the chains and, and more so for the independents, broadly speaking, but, uh, but a positive development nonetheless.
0: And Franklin, some movement this week. We've, we've been reporting on this each week as cities fall in line here, but uh, some major jurisdictions capping third-party delivery fees.
1: Yeah, we talked about Cincinnati last week and kind of the movement of this issue out of the coast into the heartland. Uh, they passed legislation to cap it 15%. Ordinances affect for only 90 days, but can be lengthened, you know, depending if you know the, the rest, the city decides that the restaurant industry needs this protection. So, that will be interesting to watch. That
0: yeah, L.A., Santa Monica, the same thing. It's it's capping it at 15 percent and capping the other fees at five percent. But I thought Los Angeles was in, interesting, and we saw we saw this in the St. Louis bill. We've seen a couple other places that you're mandating that 100 percent of delivery tips go to the drivers. I think the industry would be wise to to be kind of more formally and across the board advocating for that as a uh, protection for the workers. So
1: I would just say that that LA it just shows you how deep that legislators and policymakers are getting into this delivery business model. They want transparency. They want to see how the fees work between the restaurant and the platform and the customer and the platform. And they want to they are just attacking every. Piece of the business model of these delivery platforms, and these delivery platforms are going to have to get out there and advocate that you know their businesses too, and they got to make money to stay in business because otherwise they're going to get nipped away at every uh, at every corner here, which is the way the whole thing. This is this is working and spreading across the country right now.
0: Yep, yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting, and you know, I, I, it's unusual for a local government, state government, federal government to go inside the business model of a company and unilaterally mandate what they can charge and where they can charge it and how they charge it I mean that's you think about that just step back for a minute you can't replicate that in a lot of a lot of spaces but they have been very aggressive against these third-party delivery partner uh, platforms so it's just interesting to watch all right well another scorecard another week and uh, we'll have another one for you next week Franklin, it's a big Memorial Day, three day weekend. It, it, it seems kind of weird in the sense that, you know, we've been working from home and haven't been in the office. And it just doesn't feel like the same kind of holiday weekends. It's like our first big holiday weekend since the COVID thing started. Are you, am I, am I, am I alone there? Are you on the same page with me?
1: This weekend's Memorial Day weekend? Exactly. Yeah. No, it's uh, one day, one week, one weekend just runs into the other. It's kind of it's kind of a blur.
0: Well, I'm going to uh, I'm going to be a little bit of a traditionalist and um, try to find a, a quiet spot uh, on a Florida beach later in the weekend. I'm not going to go go there on the Saturday and Sunday, but maybe kind of towards the end of Monday and uh, hopefully catch the crowd leaving the beach as I head there. But um, will you, the Coley family be doing anything this weekend?
1: We are not going to be fighting the, the crazy in any way, shape, or form. We're going to camp out at home. As, as you know, we're kind of situated between two lakes, a couple blocks in either direction. So we will probably throw the canoe on top of it. It has a little little trailer, little wheels, and drag it uh, a couple blocks. It's always a exhibit for the neighbors to see. He's struggling with a two-and-a-half-year-old in a canoe down the sidewalk. But we'll probably, we'll probably launch and paddle around for a little while this weekend that'll be the big activity
0: well i hope i, I hope that you know, from an economic perspective that uh this is a boost to restaurant and food service operators um but i hope also that equally that uh, people are are sane and state and safe and uh taking all the precautions that they should be uh, but i hope everybody has a good uh happy and healthy memorial day weekend and uh take a minute to uh remember why it's memorial day and think about those that have served and those that have Sacrificed, and hope everybody has a great weekend. We'll talk to you next week.